Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to be with you in God's house today. Yesterday was a, a really significant day for our church. We had uh, the Redeeming Heartache Conference that happened here from uh, 9 to 4. And there were about 170 people in our, in our building um, thinking about and learning about the um, the goodness of God and the reality and the presence of shame and how the Lord wants to uh, work healing and restoration. And it was, um, it was just a beautiful time. I, I feel like yesterday was probably one of those moments where uh, as my wife and I were sitting like six or seven rows back, I just halfway through thought, this is what churches, this is what we should be doing. Uh, this is creating space for healing, creating space for reflection, uh, for growth. That, that's what churches ought to be doing. So we as a team are just so thankful. I am specifically very thankful to Jason Faulkner, who's standing in the back, will be mortified that I'm pointing at him right now. Um, but Jason, there he is. Jason is our uh, pastoral care, um, like heart engine as a church has been carrying this uh, burden, frankly, for us as a church for a really long time. And yesterday felt like a, a step out into open spaces uh, for us to see our stories and our lives and our shame uh, be touched by God, healed by God. Um, one of our things we're wrestling through and really hoping for as a church leadership is that um, increasingly we're going to be known for holding spaces like that as a church. So my hope is that this is like an annual thing where we have some sort of healing space for not just Trinity, but for the city, for people. There were people here from all over the place, and it just was a gift. Um, so, so thankful. Jason, I am grateful uh, for you in your heart uh, to see healing happen. This is supposed to be a place of healing. And I think yesterday we, we took a step in making that more public. So thanks be to God. If you missed it, um, Kathy Lorzell, who's here from the Allender Center, um, just amazing. She's a, she's a gift. And the book that, that she based a lot of what she was doing, Redeeming Heartache, is out there in the bookstore. We sell it at cost. So if you're curious, uh, pick it up. Um, I'm wearing black today just uh, for, for Tennessee people. Um, <laughs> Um, Alabama people as well. Uh, it's tough. Um, it's tough to, to lose. Um, but it's great to be a winner. Uh, so that's also good. Um, that's probably wrong and sinful. And so the good news is we're going to be talking about sin. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Proverbs 32, and I'll get to repent of my sins of pride and all the things. Um, I had a feeling, you know, going into the Georgia game yesterday, I was like, the old Georgia fan feelings started coming back. Like, oh, this is not going to go well. And then I remembered like, no, that's just, those are, that's not the way it goes anymore. Um, <laughs> I can take it. When we lose, I'll be here. Uh, I'll be here. Uh, Psalm 32, David. Oh, first, we're baptizing next week. We're going we're gonna to be baptizing at least 10 people in both of our morning services, and I hope you'll come back. This is going to be a huge celebration in the life of our church, just celebrating. We've got kids, we've got young people, we've got uh, some, some adults. It's just going to be a beautiful time for us to walk people through the waters of baptism, and I can't wait to celebrate next week. So um, wear colorful clothes and wave banners. It's going to be a really beautiful time as we welcome people into the church and ask for the power of the Spirit. Um, I'm really, really excited about next Sunday at both our 9 and 11 service. Here's what David says. Happy are those whose transgressions are, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me, says God. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, and then let's try to hear the Holy Spirit through uh, King David. Father, we thank you for the Bible. And we ask, Father, for your grace to think true and deep and real thoughts about sin and freedom. We pray, God, that you would help us to understand on a deeper level why it's so hard, so difficult to confess our sin. Teach us how to do it, God. I pray, Lord, that we would have a renewed vision of life on the other side of shame of connection on the other side of isolation, that we would, we would quite literally learn from our brother David, and that we'd be free women, free men. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of us um, grew up in churches where sin was all that anybody ever talked about, and it was not a lot of fun uh, to grow up in those kinds of churches, probably because you felt like you'd just be beat up over the head. I, I grew up in uh, sort of the waning days of purity culture in church. And so like youth group, I mean, you would have thought that like the only thing that mattered was that you not have sex. It was just, um, which is ironic and hard for teenagers because, it, you know, if I say to you, like, close your eyes and don't think of a blue uh, elephant, it's all you're going to be able to think about. And so uh, some of us grew up in churches where it was just like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And it was so much that it was almost all we, we talked about. It was all we thought about. And as a result, I think a lot of the church and maybe even Trinity being a part of this has swung in a direction of just not talking about or thinking about or reflecting on sin enough. It's not that we don't believe that it's real. It's just that we don't know what to do with it sometimes. And we don't want to promote shame. And so then sometimes we'd actually experience a, a loss and a diminishment that we're going to look at today that comes from sin. And we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to actually engage it appropriately or in a redemptive way. And then we're left confused. So I think the church has a complicated relationship with sin. Before we get into what David says, I think it's really important for us to define terms. So sin, um, sin is not fun stuff that God doesn't want you to do because he doesn't like fun stuff. Um, sin is not um, necessarily even something that we do and have fun doing. Um, sin is... Uh, born from an old word in the New Testament. So the, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek. And the Greek word for sin is hamartia. It's, it's an archery term. It means to aim and to miss. It means you just miss the mark. So it doesn't mean you had fun doing it. You might have, but it doesn't mean that necessarily. It doesn't even mean you did something. Sometimes to miss the mark is to fail to do something. It's to know that there is a right thing to do or a right attitude to have, and then you adopt the wrong one. That's sin. 
So the church has always wrestled with like sin means you aimed and missed. It means God has a plan. God has a goal. God has a bullseye. Uh, there's a Greek word for that called telos. It's like the bullseye of your life, the place where the Lord wants your life to go, my life to go, our life to go. And sin is to aim and miss. So elsewhere in the Bible, we're told all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would be what I would do in archery. I would fall short, you know, just like, you know, that's sin. So sin is stuff you do, stuff you fail to do. Sin is to live short of or less than what God's best would be for your life. So in that sense, we're all sinful. We, we should all be able to readily, without shame, admit our sin because to sin just means I miss the mark. The Greek also has a word for repentance, metanoia. And that word simply just means to rethink, to think about your thinking. It means to aim again with the grace and the help and the life of God. It means you missed and then repentance is to rethink or to think again. And I believe that if we can look at sin in a way where we are not so afraid of admitting that we do sin, we may actually understand what happens in us and what God has for us uh, when it comes to confession and forgiveness and healing. And that's really what David is reflecting on in this poem. So first things first, we all sin, all sin and fall short of God's glory. Sin means to miss. So I want you to think about that. It just means to miss. So where, where are you missing? Like, where are you missing the mark? That's sin. You don't have to be weird about it. It's just, that's it. Sin. I missed the mark. Okay. So definitions are important. The first thing David says is happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's the first movement in the text. And I actually love that David begins with the goodness on the other side of confession and forgiveness. The word forgiveness is, is actually a legal term. It can be an emotional term because sometimes when a debt is canceled, there's an emotional like cost associated with canceling a debt or there's a catharsis associated with receiving it. But I think that one of the things that we miss is that forgiveness for us almost always feels like this emotional choice that we never could figure out how to wrap our hearts or our heads around either to give it or receive it. All, all forgiveness means is to cancel a debt. It's like if you go to court and you owe money and the judge forgives your debt, it just means the judge says you, you don't owe. You don't owe anymore. You're free. And there's gift in forgiveness. But if we're going to be forgiven, we have to be aware of the places where we've missed the mark and ask for forgiveness. And what the poet says, what David, King David says, is that there is joy on the other side of forgiveness. And that means, I think, the converse as well, that when we do not seek or receive forgiveness, we have a lack of access or a diminished access or a hindered access to joy. And who doesn't want joy? Who doesn't want to, to know that you've got nothing to hide and that you can live free and you can experience a kind of life and vibrancy? What the prophet, poet, King David is saying right here is that when we actually see, admit, and receive forgiveness for our sin, that there is actually happiness and joy on the other side, that whatever that brokenness is, is then covered and healed. 
So then, therefore, if we understand David correctly, admitting wrong, seeing wrong, and admitting wrong is a step toward joy. And that's very counterintuitive. Because we live in a world where we're told to never admit when we're wrong. And one of the realities of that, I actually think one of the realities of shame in our world now, and one of the reasons why we are reticent to admit our wrong is that our world right now doesn't leave lots of room for redemptive arcs. So it's like, we love to call people out and then uh, cancel them. We, we love for people to be exposed and then ruined. And so the, the biblical narrative, the Jewish Christian narrative is that there is a life on the other side of it that has a really beautiful redemptive arc. See, if we don't believe in redemptive arc, if we don't believe in the forgiveness and the happiness, the covering of sin, uh, then we'll never, we'll never feel comfortable admitting our sin to God or any other trusted person. And yet the Bible teaches us in no uncertain terms that if we want to live in the direction of joy, we have to be the kinds of people who admit our faults, admit our and, and by sin, again, I want to be very clear. I'm not just talking about robbing liquor stores. I, I mean like the lenses through which, the postures through which we engage in relationships that aren't redemptive, uh, the places where we are cynical and fearful and those things get in the way of our own flourishing and the flourishing of other people, that's sin too. And the Lord wants us to see those things so that we would receive forgiveness and move toward joy. So if you want to move toward joy, I want to invite you to be a person who sees and admits your sin and moves through your sin into something better. That's what the, that's what the text is inviting us to do. It's what the Holy Spirit's inviting us to do. The second thing we see here is something that I think we feel in our bones, but we don't know how to talk about, which is this. Unconfessed sin hurts us, and this hurt matters to God. So here's what David says. He says, when I was holding my sin, I was wasting away. And it's weird because if you read the text and you're not paying attention to what David's actually saying, it almost seems like the words are disconnected. So he says, happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and a new spirit there is no deceit. And then the next thing he says is, while I kept silence, my body wasted away. So what David is trying to say is that happy am I when I confess, and prior to my confession, my body was wasting away. I was feeling an internal tension. And I want to tease this out because I think there are two things that are happening in this text, and I actually think there are two things that are happening in you and me when we have sin in our lives, whether it's a behavior or a pattern or a posture that is hindering our shalom, there are two things that happen. When we hold that sin and don't confess it, there's a kind of diminishing that happens. David says, I was wasting away on my bed. So he's admitting, the, I believe he's admitting the pain and the weight of shame and isolation. This reality that there was something in him that was dimming or diminishing. And if you have ever, and we all have, spent time with unacknowledged or unexamined or unconfessed sin, we know that it has a kind of diminishing power. Shame isolates us. Conviction moves us outward and towards something more redemptive. They're, they're not the same thing. So shame is what David was sitting with 
when he was groaning and wasting away. There's a, a verse in the, um, in the book of Proverbs that says, and this verse always confounded me. I actually spent a lot of time with this because I didn't understand it. It says that, that an unfaithful man is like a piece of bread. And I remember thinking, what a weird like an unfaithful, a person who cheats on their spouse, the text says it is like a piece of bread. And I was like, man, I could think of a lot of things to, like a piece of bread wouldn't have been the thing, you know? Um, and so I, as I sat with that idea, uh, and this was a wrestling for me that, that I, I like held it for, for years actually, because it was so bizarre and interesting and confusing. And I was also walking alongside, like in our church or in any church, lots of people who experience and engage in unfaithfulness and thinking, what is it? Like, what are they, what, it, what is the writer saying there? And it occurred to me that, that, that bread, being a human being likened to bread, actually is a reflection of the diminishing that happens when we sin and we become something to be consumed, something that goes stale versus a life-giving, image-bearing child of God. So basically, the, the proverb is saying the same thing David is saying. When I held unconfessed sin, I was reduced somehow. I was diminished somehow. I don't have to be a prophet or a genius or a therapist who knows your stuff to know that some of us come into this room in a diminished state because we've been holding sin and we don't know what to do with it. And so David speaks about shame and we're going to tease that out a little bit here in a few minutes, but there's also something else happening. David speaks of the isolation and the diminishment. And then at the same time, he says, but the heavy hand of God was upon me. And this is conviction. That feeling of the heavy hand of God when things are not as they ought to be is different because shame moves us into isolation. The heavy hand of God moves us toward action that is redemptive. And remember what David said at the beginning, joy lives on the other side of that redemptive action. So shame wants you to go further into the hiding. Conviction wants you to move through as an invitation to move out and through toward God and trusted other people and to be able to begin to make amends for sins committed. But one of the challenges that we have is that we don't know how to differentiate. There is reality of consequence when it comes to our sin. Sin hurts us, it costs us, it, it impairs us in our relationship with God and our own bodies sometimes, and for sure in our relationship with other people. And there's a sense in which the Lord wants us to be the kind of people who receive his heavy hand that moves us into the acknowledgement of guilt and shame without qualification, without defensiveness. The image of the heavy hand of God, for me at least, is very orienting. And a lot of us have felt this. You, you've had something unconfessed. I remember this was 20 years ago. Um, a, a guy confessed to me that he was having an affair with his best friend's wife, and the guys were in an accountability group together um, here at the church. And he had every reason to not want to ever tell anyone about that. I mean, it would have been like, it was horrifying. And if there was something in him that was moving him and pushing him out because he wanted to, there was something that made him want to name it, even though he knew it was going to be terrifying to name it. That's conviction. Shame is one that covers us up and keeps us in hiding. 
And it's really important for us to let the heavy hand of God come and teach us things. The third thing we see in this text is that confession brings healing and relief. Here's, here's what David said. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Y'all confession, admitting our fault without defensiveness or qualification is one of the most life-changing things that we can do as Christians. And it starts with confession to God and then it needs to manifest with regard to confession to trusted and trustworthy others. This is where the Catholics have a leg up on us because they go into these boxes and they actually tell a person through a screen, you know, and what happens to the rest of us who don't do that is that we just, um, we worry about our sin and we think maybe that's confession <laughs> and then we feel worse. And then we're like, well, confession's no fun. And then we just lock it up and then we feel more and more and more ashamed. What David is teaching us here is that confession, when we do it, actually brings healing and relief, even if, even as we have to deal with the consequences of our sin. There's freedom on the other side of it. There's a kind of liberty. I once heard somebody say to me that if you say something to someone and then use the word but, you can basically forget everything that you said at the beginning. So like, for instance, um, I'm sorry that I was mean to you, but my parents suck, or I'm sorry that I was mean to you, but I had a bad day. Um, but is basically a negation of whatever it is that you said before. And so when we say to God or others, things that sound like confession, but we kind of butt our way out of it, we're diminishing through distance and self, um, self-protection the gift of this healing that God wants to have. So one of the things about confession is that it's an opportunity to name our sin without excuse and without defensiveness and without explanation. So when I confess my sin to God and I pray the prayer of examine almost daily because it's the way I can keep up with my sin. <laughs> I'm good at it, so I have to keep up with it. Um, otherwise they accumulate. Are any of us, some of us are old enough that you remember um, overhead projectors where you had the little slides, like the little acetates. Um, unconfessed sin is like a bunch of those stacked up on top of one another. You can't make heads or tails of it after a while. It loses coherence. So for me, the prayer of examine is a way that I actually seek healing and relief. And it's just a simple movement at the end of the day uh, or the beginning of a day, looking back on the last day, I give thanks. I look for places where I was moving in step with God and I name those. I look for places where I was moving against the grain of God's goodness, sin, and I name those. And then I ask for forgiveness and I ask for healing. It's just a simple prayer. It's like a way of keeping short accounts with God. It's a way to seek healing and redemption on a regular basis so that they don't pile up and create a sense of incoherence. Some of us have a sense of incoherence when it comes to our sin because we just haven't dealt with it. We haven't sat with these things. So confession brings healing and relief, but it's really hard to do. Jason, are you in the room? Come up here. Um, I made Adrian do this at the first service, but I'm going to ask Jason to say a couple of things about shame. So I'm asking him to do it at this service. So we're going to teach you how to, how to do confession because the fourth thing here, put it up there is, um, we have to learn how to offer, um, and to hear confession. I think my, my hope for, for you is that you would be a person who has people in your life, um, that you can confess your sin to, and that you would be the kind of person who could hear confession from others. 
Like if we do this, man, the world would change. But we don't know how to do it. And then after we practice it, Jason's going to tell us for a few moments one of the reasons why shame keeps us from confessing our sin. Because some of you are hearing me talk right now and you're thinking, oh, dear Jesus, he is, I, everything in your body is like revolting at the thought of naming your sin. So Jason's going to confess to me that he just robbed a liquor store. So we're going to put it in like a hyperbolic space so that he hasn't done that. I don't think you're planning to do that. So here's what, remember, admitting your fault to God first and then to someone else who's trustworthy uh, without qualification or uh, defensiveness. So if Jason were to do that, he would say, I would maybe say something like, Jason, your face looks a little downcast. I'm really glad we're meeting today. Like, is there anything on your heart that you want to talk about? Yeah, Chris, I've, I've sinned, and I want to just speak that out loud. Um, on Tuesday, I robbed a liquor store. So do you see what he said? He said, I sinned. I want to name it out loud. Guilt and shame trapped in your head is not the same thing as confession because it actually makes you feel worse. So he named it his sin. He looked me in the face and then he named what it was. He didn't say I was having a really bad day. I was running a little short of cash and there it was. All of which might be true. He just named it. And then if I'm hearing confession, here's what I have to acknowledge. What he just said is going to stir up a lot of anxiety in me. I didn't think he was the kind of guy that would rob a liquor store. I think I need to make sure he knows not to do that again. All that stuff comes up, but that's for another time in another space. In confession, here's what I get to do. I get to look at him and say, Jason, I hear your confession. Jesus hears your confession, and I speak his forgiveness over you. Do you hear that? It's very specific. And then I ask Jason, I say, may I pray for you? And then when I pray, when you pray, I believe this is why laying on of hands is so important, because it's a look, a word, and a touch, a safe and appropriate touch. And then I don't Dr. Phil him or whoever the new Dr. Phil is. I don't give him counsel on why he shouldn't have done that or how to eight steps to avoid robbing the liquor store the next time. Like his therapist or a buddy can help him with that. In this moment, I just speak forgiveness and then I pray for God to heal shame and to speak peace and to reconcile him in ways where he would know that he is loved, where he would know he's not what he thinks he is at his worst moment, but he's a child of God. So Jason, you, we did a lot of work yesterday um, around shame and stories. Why do you think in your pastoral experience, it's really hard for people, for us, to open up when it comes to confession to God, others, whatever? I'd love to hear you just talk about it for a minute. Yeah, the, during the first service, I was just feeling this feeling that we all have, and maybe some more than others, of, gosh, this is so hard for me. Even to say those three words or two words, I'm sorry, just I feel so much resistance in my body. Like if you're feeling that right now, this is what Chris and I were talking about between services, there's probably a really good reason for that. And instead of sitting there thinking, well, gosh, you know, David says I should do this, Chris says I should do this, 
there's so much resistance. There must be something really wrong with me. I can't do this Christian thing. Mm. Could it be an invitation to be curious about why is there so much resistance in saying, I'm sorry? Maybe it wasn't ever modeled for you. Maybe you didn't hear that from a parent. Or maybe to do something wrong as a child instead of taking through this redemptive process of confession and repentance, maybe you were just, the, the shame was just heaped on you. Yeah. So to feel any kind of feeling of vulnerability and saying, I'm sorry, just brings all that childhood shame rushing back in. And you couldn't bear it as a child and you can't bear it now. So you just can't say the, those words. So I just think it's worth saying, as we like think about what we are all supposed to do yeah. as men and women who are trying to be more like Jesus for the sake of ourselves, those around us, for this world, we've got to be curious about where, not only how we are sinning and what we need to do about that, but where is this resistance coming from to becoming a more free person? Because we could just start going through the confession carousel and doing the same thing over and over again and confessing to the same sin over and over again. And that's not helpful either. That's not freedom either. So just wanted to really good. say that as well. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Y'all, we can do this. And yet what happens so often, and this is what David says at the end of the text, he talks about the Lord being a hiding place for him. Do you know that unconfessed sin is its own hiding place, but it's not a good one. It's, it, it feels, um, it feels isolating. And I believe that one of the things the Lord is inviting us to do is to be the kinds of people who learn how to do this for one another. And that means God wants you to be the kind of person who can and expects to hear confession. I would say that if you're married, your, your partner should not be your primary confessor. Uh, generally speaking, I think our confessing relationships need to be same gendered. Uh, if you don't have a person in your life who is trustworthy, your pastors are here for you. There are men and women on this team that would hear confession in the manner that I just described. You could offer confession at the end of a church service. It doesn't have to be an hour and a half of fear and loathing and hand-wringing. There's a way to say, this is, what, this is where I am. This is where I'm missing the mark, and I'm asking for healing. The Lord, I think, has an opportunity for us to go into deeper spaces. And y'all, I... You're going to hear me say this over and over and over and over again, but I just am of the deep conviction, the growing conviction that as we move as a society toward post-Christendom, people are still going to need to know what to do with their shame, including you, me. And we have something to say to that, y'all, because the pain of shame that happens that pushes us further into the shadows is the very tool that the devil of hell uses to keep you from joy. There is life on the other side of confession and being known by God and by a trusted community. So I want to call you to pray for people who are trustworthy in your life, endeavor to be a trustworthy person in people's lives. And if you don't have any uh, traction in that area, then reach out to Jason, reach out to me, reach out to Adrian, reach out to our team, and we will hear confession. Pray for you. We'll do it at the end of the service. Uh, the Lord wants to move you. Um, I believe he wants to work healing. Here's the last thing. The, the, the prophet, king, poet says God will preserve us. 
And I just love the fact that David basically says that the flood, the weight will not, the flood of sin and shame will not get to us. That there's a way to deal with it, that God's given us a way to actually um, move out of the shadows and into something more life-giving. Confession actually liberates us. I think this is why David ends the poem this way. Confession liberates us to sin less. It liberates us to live free. I mean, what would your, what would your life look like if you didn't have anything to hide? I mean, good Lord. We'd be brave. We, we would be willing to take risk. We, we, would, be willing to, we would be willing to do things that maybe otherwise we, we wouldn't do. And I think the Lord is actually just inviting us. So if you have your Bible, um, I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. So the text ended at 7 for us. But here's what David says after the text. He says, God says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then listen to this in verse 9. This is so good. David says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle or else it will not stay near you. So what David is saying there is don't be like an animal that has to be tied up. And some of us, all you've ever known of Christian spirituality is a thing that would tie you up. And it's so fascinating to me that David in this moment is saying, that doesn't have to be what you are. You don't have to be tied up to not do bad things or to miss the mark. There's a, a gift in freedom and confession that will actually make us more like people versus animals or bread. <laughs> but it's going to take your participation. So here's what I want to leave us with. I would love us to take a moment of reflection where we ask the question, what sin might God be inviting you to confess to him and to trustworthy others? And remember, sin is not just something you did that was bad. Sin could be a posture or an attitude or a belief system that is pulling you out of shalom, out of God's best for you. That's why the Bible teaches us to name sins of commission, things we do, and sins of omission, things we fail to do. So what I want us to do is to be brave enough to spend a few moments and begin to reflect, is there a pattern? Is there something that is help making me live less than free that I need to name to God and to someone else in a safe and trusted way? So we're going to spend just a few moments in reflection. I'm not going to ask you to then therefore start shouting your sin out loud. So just relax a little bit. This is more of a sense of discovery for us to go, what might God be putting his finger on? There is something most likely in your life or some things that do not have a name right now that need a name, that need you to name them. Um, and that's what confession does is it gives us a space to begin to name something that's living unnamed and wreaking havoc. So let's spend just a few moments in some silent reflection and then we'll come to the communion table together.
we're able to stand together.